0: I'm in the T1 of Brass. I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. Making his weekly appearance on Fangraphs Audio is managing editor Dave Cameron. And in What Follows, this is what happens. First, Dave Cameron tries to explain the difference between unsustainability and luck. Or, I should say, he does explain it, and I try to understand it. Two, second, I make the charge that Fangraphs is broken, because in the MLB standings at Fangraphs, there's some indication that the Pirates... Are in first place in the NL Central. Three, third, I try and compel Dave Cameron to say that Mike Trout will be the AL MVP. He refuses to do so. I try harder. Four, we review Dave Cameron's piece from Monday called Buyers, Holders, and Sellers. We profile uh, what a buyer looks like, what a seller looks like. We don't profile what Dave Cameron looks like. No one wants to know about that. And five, Andrew Kasher, starting pitcher? Question mark? Exclamation. Another exclamation. It's Fan Graphics Audio. It features our managing editor, Dave Cameron, and it begins right now.
1: Oh, yeah. I think I'm going to write about this uh, uh, and the idea of luck versus unsustainability.
0: Which is the unsustainable part?
1: Well, basically the plan is going to be that he has a high Babbitt, uh, and generally we just have done a poor job of explaining what that means, so we just say, it's luck, it won't continue, but if you throw really terrible pitches, it's not luck. It's unsustainable pitch location. Like, uh, I think most people look at luck as, like, the outcome when the ball is hit, so uh, they look at Babbitt and be like, oh, a bunch of bloopers fell in, but sometimes it's like those balls were pounded all over the field, but he was doing something that he's not going to continue doing. So he can pitch badly and still post unsustainable results at the same time. It's not either or. But luck kind of, you know, waves that away.
0: Now, you mentioned – I think you mentioned – we didn't really get into it, but you mentioned at one point that there's this thing that sometimes happens, and I'm not sure if there was a quality study on it or if it was more anecdotal, where a, pitcher, a pitcher's BABIP um, – basically his batted ball information – Will, will be worse than league average um, but maybe it's it's somehow tied to a drop in velocity or drop in stuff generally
1: well I think we've seen that you know uh, marginal pitchers uh, tend to have worse Babbitts than good pitchers I mean I think that's the thing that's been shown at least in small increments uh, so if a pitcher you know was throwing 96 and is now throwing 94 and as battlebit goes up that may not be you know all bad luck that could be worse pitches
0: is there a thing that can happen where a pitcher has um like a huge um a huge gap between the quality of his pitches so for example we know that linsicum's changeup is is stupid good right but if we if we think that maybe he lost velocity on his fastball and it wasn't as effective and yet he has to throw it at some point uh i mean i'm just using linsicum as an example there but do you think that's a thing that could happen in theory, with sure. other pitchers uh, that might explain there?
1: Yeah, and I think with Limsicum, what have actually saying his changeup has gotten uh, less effective this year, too, um, which is probably because hitters are sitting on him, so looking for the fastball. Because they used to have to sit fastball, and otherwise they throw 96 past him. Now they can sit changeup and adjust to 91 if they need to. So um, I think the deterioration of one pitch can certainly have an effect on the quality of the other pitch.
0: Is there still anything to explain, like, what was happening to – or I guess probably what still happens, but certainly what was happening to Ricky Nalasco. You know, like the last three or four years or certain versions of James Shields, maybe even, where um, they would have excellent peripherals, but but consistently be, it seems, on the wrong end of BABIP and, and home runs per fly ball. Yeah, I
1: mean with the with the with Alaska, my feeling is that's maybe more Marlins' defense. I mean they've run out some really atrocious defenders, Logan Morrison in the outfield, and uh, you know Hanley Ramirez at shortstop. They've had some pretty bad defenses there. So I'd be interested to see what Alaska's bat was on a better defensive team. But there certainly are guys who underperform their peripherals on a consistent basis, and it could be because you know they have really lousy location at times. Uh, it could be because you know their environment. Uh, it's hard to say exactly what it is, but I, I don't think we can just dismiss the fact that, you know, maybe in was thrown somewhat easier to hit pitches than other pitchers. Um, the question is whether that will continue, and I guess that's the idea of unsustainability, right? It's like, maybe it wasn't bad luck that the ball got whacked off the wall for a double because he threw it down the middle, but it's not something that you're going to do every pitch. Like, it's not something, that's not a pitch location that in Alaska is aiming for, or that he's going to keep throwing
0: right, I guess the, the strange thing is that a pitcher in this case Nalasco in, in a certain vintage of Nolasco, that he would be able to strike out so many batters while walking so few and getting decent ground ball rates, but then having these lapses in whatever those lapses are we don't know but having something occur in the in the interim while he's doing that and being very effective um, I guess the, the question is like trying to apprehend what that is that's going on there.
1: Right. I mean, that's the the complicated part, is trying to figure out uh, the cause of the effects that we see. So, you know, um, whether it's bad location, whether it's uh, mental lapse of concentration, uh, whether it's bad, you know, defense, whether it's the park, uh, it could be a lot of things.
0: Okay, so listen, um, I'm going to – this is a segue. It's not a particularly good one, but um, it's uh, slightly clever on my part, which is I'm going to suggest – Uh, Dave Cameron, I'm going to suggest that maybe Fangraphs, the website, is broken. And let me tell you why I think that. I was looking uh, under the Teams tab on the site today, and it says uh, there it's indicated under the Teams tab at Fangraphs.com, for which we both write, uh, that the Pirates are in first place in the the NL Central. If they said AL Central, it would definitely be broken. Still NL Central, I think it's broken. I don't believe that the Pirates are in first place.
1: I think Major League Baseball is broken, or at least the National League Central. I mean, I think the. Uh, the I mean, the, the hilarious thing is, you know, we've spent the last month or so pointing out that the Pirates are having an historically awful offensive season. Uh, You know, I think as, as of the end of May, they were on pace to have the worst offensive season of any team since 1900. They have since passed like four or five teams, so now they're only having like the sixth or seventh worst offensive season in the last 112 years, uh, and the, the fact that they're in first place is. Uh, amazing, hilarious. Fill in your own adjective. Um, I mean, their pitching good, their defense is good. That division has not uh, played as well as it should have, and the Pirates have been clutch. So you add all those things together, and you get a, a slightly above 500 team with a dreadful offense that will not be in first place for much longer.
0: First of all, with regard to the Pirates, I think it it represents all. Of, I mean, everything else being equal, it represents an improvement that you feel comfortable saying that their pitching has been good and their defense has been good, because that has not always been the case with the Pirates for, say, the last 17, 18 years.
1: Right. Well, I think this is the thing that we saw that they focused on. I mean, they signed Clint Barmouth as a free agent who's, uh, you know, a good glove defensive shortstop who can't hit, and he's been awful at the plate this year. But he does provide value in the field, uh, and that's clearly a thing that they prioritized. Uh, You know, they've gone with uh, defensive outfielders like Alex Presley and Nate McClough, who, you know, are questionable hitters, but generally good defenders. Uh, McClough's not always a great defender, but, you know, as a corner guy, has more range than most. Um, you know, so they... Like, Neil Walker's not a great defender. Pedro Alvarez isn't a great defender. It's not like they put eight gold glovers on the field, but they have, you know, prioritized defense in some areas, and, you know, the obviously the acquisition of James McDonald was paid off pretty well. He was having a nice year, and signing Eric Bedard. They've made some nice moves on the pitching and defense fronts. Uh, it's unfortunate for them that their hitters have just been so bad.
0: Right. Now, you mentioned... Uh you mentioned that, that they've been the most clutch team, or at least one of the most clutch teams. Can you, can you sort of explain what you mean by that?
1: Well, I think if you look at the difference between the Pirates' performance uh, in situations that, like, you know, base is empty uh, or a non-high leverage situation, so when the game's already been decided, uh, they perform significantly worse than they do when the game is on the line or they have a chance to strand runners or drive in runners. So uh, probably the easiest way to look at this, uh, you know, I think most of the standard way is to look at it by you know, men on base, runners in scoring position, uh, bases empty, and the Pirates certainly perform better in those bases, uh, those situations with runners in scoring position and men on base than they do with the bases empty. But even if it goes beyond that, when you look at, like, score and inning and uh, timing of hits, um, is one of the easy ways to do it is just look at the graphs clutch rating on the win probability leaderboards, um, which basically measures the difference between a team's win probability added and their win probability average divided by leverage index, which basically just takes the Uh, context of the score out of play. So it still considers how many runs you'd expect based on the base out situation, but it takes the score and inning out of play and comes up with a kind of a number of wins that you'd expect in a context, somewhat context neutral situation. Uh, and I think the Pirates have been five wins better than their context neutral-ish, I mean not completely context neutral, but score inning neutral, uh, stats would suggest. Um, I think they've been two wins better on clutch hitting and three wins better in clutch pitching and defense, um, and that adds up pretty fast.
0: Okay, now yeah, it's so w- you were mentioning the adjectives we might insert um, into into you know, or we might use to describe what the Pirates are doing right now. Of course, they're um, they're five games above 500, which is uh, not something we would expect. They are in fact uh, two games ab- uh, ahead of the St. Louis Cardinals, who. Um, just as the uh, the Pirates have the worst offense in the major leagues, um, approximately 30. We should say they have a team WRC plus, which is essentially uh, overall batting relative to league average of 70, which is to say they're 30 percentage points or 30 percent worse than league average. Is that fair? Yep. Yeah. Uh, the St. Louis Cardinals. Um, I know it. I, I know up to two weeks ago they were they had posted a like a historically great. Um, WRC plus as a team they were you know it was like fifth best number ever I think they were at 121 they're still at 115 tied with the Yankees uh, atops the, atop the major leagues uh, they are also um, acquitted quite nicely or acquitted quite well by uh, our uh, by war winning percentage right by war winning percentage they should have 37 wins about six about six more than they do right now um, however they are two games behind the Pirates Is it just a question of of saying where the Pirates have gotten lucky in such situations the Cardinals haven't, or is there something else going on?
1: Uh, I mean, whether you want to call it luck or, uh, you know, just good fortune that won't continue or, you know, whatever you want to call it, it's clearly something that isn't very predictive. So uh, the Cardinals' record is driven down heavily by their record in one run games. I think they're like two and nine or something in one run games. Something not very good. Uh, and the Pirates have, you know, done really well in situations where the game is on the line. Uh And so, you know, this is the kind of thing that doesn't uh carry over very well from one period of time to the next. So I don't think we can expect the Pirates to continue to win a lot of close games and the Cardinals to continue to lose a lot of close games. Um, so, you know, I think if you look at the run differential, it's the same thing. The Pirates are in the negative and the Cardinals are, like, plus 55. I think they have the best run differential in the na- National League. So it's not just that, you know, war is out on a, an island here overvaluing something the Cardinals do, uh, the Cardinals just aren't winning as many games as they should be based on how they're playing.
0: Now, a, a team that has sort of uh, fought its way back into contention, uh, you know, to the degree that you can say that contention is a word you're even considering in uh, in June, um, is the Los Angeles Angels, the Angels of Anaheim. Um, however you like to say them, regardless they're now only three games behind and... I'm curious as to, as to what percent of that do you think um, is solely due to Mike Trout? Uh,
1: well, he's been worth almost three wars to this point, so I think you could credit him with three wins. Okay. You know, so uh-huh. however, whatever percentage you want to value that as, uh, there, there you go, that's your percentage. So, so I mean, were... I think Trout, you know, has been obviously very good. Uh, and, you know, Pools turning it around at the same time that Trout came up has influenced the record pre- and post-Trout, uh, certainly. Um, but the Angels, you know, they weren't a bad team. They just played like one in April. We shouldn't have expected them to play like a pretty good team. And then they added a really good player, so then they have played like an even better team.
0: Um, yeah, it should be noted until yes, until this morning, actually, I believe. Um, if you went to the leaderboards, uh, the the WAR leaderboards at Fangraphs, um, Mike Trout's name wasn't there, and it's not because. He, um, his overall war total um, wasn't deserving of appearing on the leaderboards it's because he hadn't qualified yet
1: I think that's actually still true I tweeted out a link to the leaderboard this morning that included trout and I had to unqualify the leaderboard in order to get him on there
0: right so well uh, whether he's on the cusp or he's just or he's just made it his way over uh, the point is that what he's done is kind of silly I'm question I'm curious because um, so he has 2.9 uh, he's been worth um, basically just under three wins in um, hundred seventy seven play appearances at this point if you look at zips which will essentially add if you look at his you know his uh, updated end of season line which will add his year to- date stats to a sort of projected war line based off of a more conservative estimate of his talents or it's going to be naturally it's going to be conservative because it's a projection system right he comes out as a five point eight win player uh, yep. which Puts him in the conversation, at least among projected players, end of season lines, puts him in a sort of MVP conversation. Yes or, well I guess uh, I'll say yes or no. I'm saying yes, what do you say?
1: Well, I think Josh Hamilton is, uh, far and above, uh, Trout in the MVP race at this point. I mean, I like Mike Trout, but, the, you know. If we're talking about who's actually going to win the award, Josh Hamilton might have to die in order for him to not win it. I mean, he's going to finish the, with the league lead in home runs, but he's going to be up there in RBIs, and he's going to play for a playoff team. So uh, good luck getting anyone besides Josh Hamilton to win the MVP this year, uh, barring some kind of injury. Um, but I think with Trout, you know, uh, he's going to get votes uh, as long as the Angels continue to play. Yeah, I think most people realize it's at this point that Trout's probably in the conversation for the Angels' best player. player uh, whether he's better than Albert Pujols right now you know, maybe up for arguments. Uh, I'd be towards probably not, but it's close. And, uh, you know, the best player on a contending team usually gets votes, especially if they've had a really good year.
0: Do you think it's a possibility that um, – and, of course, you know, we look at the difference between what the voters will say and who is more deserving. Um, but do you think just if the Angels ended up passing the Rangers, if the Angels finished first in that division, do you think that's the sort of thing? Because I, I feel like where a team um, finishes in the standings – Um, will have some influence on on whether um, that team's players are given consideration for MVP.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think if the Angels win the division, then then an Angel player is more likely to win the MVP than than a Ranger player. But I also think that knowing what uh, the voters like to vote for, if the Angels win the division and Mark Trumbo keeps doing what he might do, Mark Trumbo might get a lot of MVP votes. And right now, you can maybe argue that Mark Trumbo deserves some MVP votes. He's having a heck of a year as well. So um, you know, I think Trumbo's more of the MVP style, the, the player, the player style that MVP voters prefer. Um, and Trout's, a lot of his value is tied up in defensive metrics and high batting average on balls in play. So you can look at Trout and say, okay, this is a guy who's playing really well, but is performing exceedingly well in the two areas that we would least expect him to continue. Um, not that Trumbo, you know, his batting average of multiple players is extremely high as well, but he hits for a lot of power and does things that voters notice. And so, um, you know, I know you love Mike Trout, but I would wager a lot of money that he will not win the MVP this year.
0: And you have a lot of money as the managing editor of Fangraphs.
1: Well, that's because I steal all your paychecks. Yeah. Well, I, you know,
0: I thought I saw that. I thought I saw yeah. something happening.
1: Right. If you were hungry lately and had no money, uh, that was why. That
0: was precisely why. Yeah. Well, that's all right. Uh, you know, I don't need it. Um, now, listen. You wrote a piece today for the site uh, called Buyers, uh, Holders, or Sellers, or something in that order. Buyers, Sellers, or Holders, something like that. Um, now, I guess. Uh, let's see. Yeah. Speak, I mean, speaking generally, the baseball season is six months long. Yeah. Um, comment on this characterization. First two months, you sort of figure out what's happening. Uh, you know, where where the teams are. You know, what they're Chances are, I guess, the next two months, June, July, uh, more or less dedicated to, you know, to. Um, there's going to be some roster modifications. Uh, teams that are out of it will look for younger players. Teams that are in it will make some make some moves to that effect. And then the last two months, is uh, August, September, lets those teams play it out. Fair characterization.
1: Fair characterization. Maybe the fairest you've ever made.
0: Yeah. <laughs> uh, now, you, you wrote in this piece, what sort of criteria are you using at this point for, for what constitutes a buyer, a holder, and a seller?
1: Well, you know, there wasn't a strict uh, algorithm that calculated these for me. It was uh, There was some subjectivity in there, but it was... Whoa, whoa, whoa,
0: whoa. Wait a second. This is Fangraphs, Dave Cameron. I, I,
1: I know. Uh, as, as much as we uh, like numbers, uh, there is some room for human observation, uh, and so I put a little human observation into the post. Um, essentially, looked at like the teams that I would say, in my mind, not going off necessarily like a straight playoff odds calculator, but teams that I would say probably have a 60-plus percent chance of making the playoffs this year based on their current standings and their overall talent levels. Uh, I don't think the White Sox are necessarily the best team in the American League Central, but the they've put themselves in a position where over the next four months they probably can't be expected to fall completely out of the race given the lead they have over the uh, Tigers. And, you know, I think they're basically in a dead heat with the Indians, and you could probably make a case the White Sox are a better team than the Indians. So, you know, I think that looking at a team like that, you say, I have to think there are odds of reaching some kind of playoff level whether it's winning the division or one of the two wild cards is, you know, somewhere north of 60%. Um, same thing with the Rays and the Yankees and, the other teams that I put in the buying category is just kind of eyeballing and saying, in my estimation, I think these teams have, you know, maybe a two and three chance of uh, ending up with eighty-eight plus wins, which will probably get you uh, in the neighborhood of the second wild card.
0: Okay. Now, I, I guess there are a couple surprises here, but do you roughly equate like you look at these buyers in particular? Uh, I mean, these are teams that we that we think will maybe do some. Uh, trading down the stretch. Is that right? Is that the only thing that, that you'd say about them or is there other things that, that buyers are going to do?
1: Well, I think my, the, the buyers category isn't just that they're going to do some trading down the stretch. I was trying to point out which teams would be trying to do it now. So uh, the teams that are in the buying category, I was trying to illustrate the point that they should begin trying to acquire players now before some of those holding teams move into the buyer category and uh, increase demand for a limited supply of players. So the six teams listed uh, my argument is essentially that each of those six teams should be calling the eight sellers right now and trying to make a trade bid.
0: Now it seems to me as though teams that have a sort of wide disparity in talent um, are probably they're they're in a, in a better position to to upgrade um, because you know like you I think um, we were talking before and with regard to the White Sox you noted how they have had a hole at third base essentially yeah. um, at this point the fact that. You know, you're classifying them as buyers, the fact that they're in first place in the AL, Cent- or the AL Central, yeah. That's actually almost an advantage to have just a total vacuum somewhere.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's certainly easier to upgrade from bad to okay than from okay to good. Uh, there are just more okay players out there. You know, that's why the talent pyramid is considered to be a pyramid with a you know a pretty wide base and a pretty narrow top. Um, so for a team like the White Sox, who just, you know, need a live body at third base uh which you know, they thought Orlando Hudson might be, but, you know, apparently is not. And he's not a third baseman, so that was a little bit of an odd experiment to begin with. Um, but it's certainly going to be easier for them than it was for like a team like the Diamondbacks last year who were, you know, average across the board with a couple of stars, um, but didn't have any real obvious holes. It was difficult for them to upgrade over the winter. We've seen them regress back because, you know, whether they could replace Ryan Roberts, or, you know, it was going to be hard to upgrade on a guy who's, has some uses but isn't uh, necessarily worth benching. Um, so, you know, a team like the White Sox or even the Nationals, who have some glaring weaknesses, probably do have an advantage. Um, but I think most teams at this point, there there aren't too many teams in baseball that don't have a glaring hole. Um, you know, even the Yankees, I think you could look at it and be like, well, this is a pretty significant issue for them. Uh, this is the obvious place for them to go upgrade.
0: Now, with, and with regard to these sellers, you have about, uh, looks like, eight teams here. Yep. Um San Diego, Chicago, Colorado, Minnesota, Kansas City, Oakland, Houston, Seattle. With regard to those teams, um, do you see any of these teams that have obvious players that ought to be traded? Uh, I mean, we saw the we saw the Cubs trade Marlon Byrd. I think it was a trade, or yeah. maybe it was a designation. Yeah. it
1: was a trade.
0: Yeah, uh, it was a trade. Um, Houston sort of has Carlos Lee. He's out on the. He's injured right now, and he's expensive. Um, so there's you know and there's some questions to, to how we could help a team anyway. I'm curious as to any of the players who will very clearly be changing hands uh, this off season or, or, or well, I should say this trade the trade deadline.
1: I would say the one guy who I would be absolutely shocked if he wasn't traded is Ryan Dempster. Um, he's one of the better pitchers in the league, criminally underrated. I mean he's been a quality pitcher for you know the last five or six years. Um, he's free agent at the end of the year. He's 35 years old not a guy that's in the Cubs' long-term plans. Uh, they could keep him and try and offer him a one-year tender to get drastic compensation, but as we saw last year with, like, Rogi Kuroda and Edwin Jackson, you know, some of these good but not great starting pitchers don't end up landing more than one-year deals anyway, uh, especially an older guy, and uh, Dempster might find that his free agent market is not as hot as he would expect and just take the one-year qualifying offer, and the Cubs probably don't want to pay him 12 or $13 million for 2013 when they're still going to be rebuilding, so uh, Dempster is the guy that I think is you know, the very obvious uh, trade shift, he's a guy who should have a lot of, uh, you know, he should return a decent amount of a quality starting pitcher. Um, and, you know, he gets strikeouts, he gets some ground balls. Uh, he's the kind of guy who can fit into a playoff rotation for any team, even the Yankees or the Red Sox. So um, Dempster's a guy I think would be at the very top of the list of guys to move. Uh, other names, I think you'll probably see Matt Garza brought up as well. Carlos Quentin, uh, Brandon League in Seattle is almost certainly going to get traded at some point. Uh, Bartolo Colon. I think there's you know a bunch of marginal guys out there that are basically blocks to get moved, but of guys who can really make an impact, I think uh, Ryan Dempster is probably the top name.
0: Right. Yeah. And then and then probably a sort of uh, any number of relief pitchers. You mentioned Brandon League. I assume that Houston Street uh, is a candidate to be traded by the end of the season.
1: Yeah, you would think that the Padres... The Padres are kind of interesting. They traded for Houston Street and Carlos Quentin in their walk years, and then they're terrible. And I think they had to know that they weren't going to be very good this year. Uh, So why did they trade for these free agents? To be, in Quentin's case, his skill set actually plays pretty well in Petco Park because he's an extreme pole right-handed hitter, and that's the area that Petco hurts the least for hitters. Uh, I think there's some thought that maybe the Padres will re-sign Quentin, and so he might not be as available as people think. Uh, with Houston Street, though, it just it wouldn't make any sense for the rebuilding Padres to refine a closer.
0: Now, with regard to those Padres, a curious thing has happened recently, which is that the team has decided to move um, very hard-throwing Andrew Kashner, um, who had some luck, at least early on in the season, um, out of the bullpen. Um, I, I think pretty consistently reaching triple digits, or certainly with that sort of potential, uh, they decided to send him to the rotation. He got a brief start. Um, this weekend, I don't. I think he performed fine, but then uh, afterwards, um, with a view to stretching him out—which I think is a gross term, but I'll say it anyway—with a view to stretching him out, they sent him to Double A San Antonio. Um, it would strike me as a curious move because his walk rates have been consistently high, and we're not any lower this year. Is there a reason why it isn't a curious move?
1: Well, I think when they acquired Cashner, uh the idea was that he was gonna be a long term starting pitcher I and mean, they traded Anthony Rizzo to get him. Uh they didn't trade him they didn't trade Anthony Rizzo to get a relief pitcher. So they used him in the release because they were trying to keep the wear and tear his arm down. This is the guy who's had a lot of arm troubles in his career, missed basically all of the last year. So they were pitching him out of the bullpen essentially to limit his innings. And uh now that they've had so many starting pitching injuries, I think they're realizing that waiting until next year to try and stretch him out uh was a little bit impractical and so especially with guys like Robbie Irwin down in the minors uh, on the disabled list. They don't have the depth of starting pitching to call up for this year that they thought they might. So they just went ahead and decided to stretch Cashner out a little sooner. So this was always the plan. it just the timetable got moved up a little bit. Uh, you know, in ter- regards to his command issues, I think part of that is that he's throwing 100 out of the bullpen. He probably won't be throwing 100 in the rotation. And we see his velocity goes down. Command usually goes up. Uh, so I would expect that Cashner will, you know, walk fewer guys uh, as a starter than he did as a reliever. His strikeouts will also go down. So whether the improving command will more than offset the loss of um, dominance is, remains to be seen. But I don't think that we should look at Cashner's relief walk rate and assume that that's going to be a starting walk rate.
0: We still don't entirely know, though, do we? And maybe, you know, perhaps it's one of those things you can never tr- uh, truly know. What is going to happen uh, to a pitcher when you move him from the bullpen to the rotation? I mean, we've seen Jeff Samarja, who pitched um, out of the bullpen uh, predominantly in the major leagues before this season. Uh, he began the season to start on his pitch wonderfully, and uh, his velocity, if I'm not mistaken, uh, has not t- has not decreased um, that much. Uh, meanwhile, and all, yeah, yeah, it, and then meanwhile you have hard, y- yeah. you have the case of Daniel Bard, who is brilliant out of the bullpen. Uh, just really sharp stuff, excellent velocity. Um, his slider is uh, can be devastating. He has like a two seam and or change up thing that he throws. I mean, it's like a 92 mile per hour pitch with improbable movement. Um, but none of that has really showed up as a starter. So I guess, the, you know, is there a way to profile a guy? So if you look at Cashner, are you able to say uh, more of a Samarja or or more of a, of a Bard?
1: Yeah, I don't know that you can ahead of time. I mean, I think we've seen that in reverse where we definitely see guys go to the bullpen and get, bigger velocity spikes than normal. I think Joe Nathan was kind of the classic example. He was 88 to 91. as a starting pitching prospect for the Giants. Then he got traded to the Twins. They moved to the bullpen. He was 97 to 100. So it was like, all right, you couldn't have predicted that. Uh, going the other way, though, it's tough to sell. I mean, Natalie leave lost about a mile and a half on his fastball. Uh, Lance Lynn and Justin Margin didn't lose much at all, and Daniel Bard lost four miles an hour. So there's a a wide range of reliever, starter, conversion, velocity losses. Uh, I think in general, it's assumed that you lose between one and two miles an hour, but there's obviously a deviation on both sides. And I think any pitcher who loses three or four is probably not going to be doing so well, um, you know, four especially. Three is maybe doable if your command improves a lot, or in Chris Dale's case, you still have good movement on the pitch. Um, but I think, you know, the guy who can hold his velocity and pitch just as hard in the rotation as we did in the bullpen is obviously going to make a easier transition. Um whether Cashner is a guy who can do that, uh, it's hard to know in advance. I think the the Padres are hoping that he'll not lose a lot of velocity. Um but you know, anytime you're having to throw 100 to 120 pitches, it's pretty, uh, you should be expected to not be able to throw as hard as when you're only throwing 15.
0: Uh, staying out west, and uh, we'll make this the, uh, this will be the last thing about which I bother you, but um, your Seattle Mariners, Dave Cameron, uh, over the weekend or maybe it was Friday, I don't remember, but they pitched a no-hitter. Right. They pitched a no-hitter as yes. a team. Yes. Uh, anything remarkable about that other than the fact that they kept throwing the ball and none of, none of them got to first base because they hit it?
1: I mean, I think it was maybe the most unremarkable core of pitchers to ever throw a no-hitter. I mean, Kevin Millwood was a... Uh, minor league free agent signing over the winter. He was a guy who couldn't find a job last season until midseason when the Rockies finally gave him a chance. Uh, and then, you know, it wasn't exactly a high priced commodity this offseason. Uh, so for him to start the game, you know, he's maybe the least, uh, the guy you'd least expect to get a no hitter out of, uh, in, at least in that team and maybe in that league. And then the parade of relievers is, you know, a Rule 5 pick named Lucas Litney who is. Uh, not a highly thought of prospect, not a flamethrower, he's just a lefty who throws sliders down and away on every single pitch. Uh, you know, and then there's, um, Charlie Furbush, and you know, Stephen Pryor, who'd only pitched in, I think, three games in the major league, but at that point, has good stuff, but doesn't have good command, uh, and was very inexperienced. Uh, you know, it was basically a parade of nobodies. And, uh, for that parade of nobodies now hit the team with the best record in baseball, is, uh, you know, it's just one of those fun things about baseball.
0: Yeah. Uh, yeah, I guess good for them. Good for, I mean, uh, Seattle fans need something. Uh, I mean, they live in a dreary city, and not right now so much, but, you know, for nine months of the year, and uh, and their team has been miserable.
1: Right, but I will say, like, if you have not seen the gifs of Jesus Montero's reactions
0: He was ha- he was thrilled.
1: He was, like, cause it, you know, in no-hitters, the pitcher usually, like, drops to his knees and is extremely thrilled. Tom Wilhelmson got the last three outs, he didn't really do that much he just like closed out a win like he normally does so montero rushes the mound and montero's a big boy uh ready to like jump into Wilhelmsen's arms Wilhelmsen has no idea what's coming yeah. and almost gets pancaked by the catcher it is uh is a lot of
0: fun well I, guess, I mean you could make you could make an argument i guess i mean besides millwood that you know or, or maybe more than millwood even that that was Jesus montero's no hitter
1: Right, I mean that's kind of the thing, is Montero's the one guy who was involved in the entire no-hitter, everyone else just has a fraction of it, so, uh, you know, if you're gonna say, whose no-hitter was this, it was Jesus Montero's, and, you know, it's also kind of fun that Montero's not a good defensive catcher, and he's gotten ragged on for, uh, not being able to stick behind the plate, I don't, I still don't think he's a long-term catcher, but for him to be able to say, hey look, you know, Throughout my entire minor league career, everyone said I was a DH, and then I got a no-hitter in the big league. That's something you can always you know, tell his kids about.
0: Right, in a, a game in which Charlie Furbush played an integral role.
1: Yeah, you know, uh, Charlie Furbush, not a household name, actually a pretty good left-handed relief pitcher.
0: Okay, fine. I, I accept that. Yeah, yeah. 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 Lucas Lutgey? Lucas Lutgey? Litge. Lucas Litki. Litge? Litge. Yeah. he has a um, yeah, it's like L U E right or uh, something like that.
1: L-U-E-T-G Right, yeah.
0: yeah, yeah. It's a it's an uncommon arrangement of, of vowels. And,
1: and the fun thing about Lichty is he's uh, uh, really the biggest one trick pony going in baseball right now. He literally just throws the same down and away slider to every left handed batter he faces on every pitch, uh, and they still swing at it and he still gets in the strike out. It's hilarious. He throws, you know, eighty nine miles an hour. Uh, to the same location, and he hasn't given up a run in his major
0: league career. Well, that's a good trick to have. I mean, yeah, yeah, if the trick is good enough, you can usually survive. Right. Right. Um, All right, well, uh, Cameron, anything else you got for me?
1: Uh, Not on the air. We'll have to save all the uh, yelling and screaming uh, for Uh,
0: post-recording. Hey, do do you know, uh, are you going, do you know to um, this thing this summer in Minneapolis? What is it, the Sabre event?
1: I am not going to the thing in Minneapolis. Uh, I am going to Seattle uh, at the beginning of July, and we'll be having an event uh, at FaithGo in mid-July, and then I am going to the Faber Seminar in Boston uh, at the beginning of August. So I will be around in places, but I will not be in Minneapolis.
0: Okay, yeah. Yeah, and I think I might see you there in Boston. I think I might see you there in Boston.
1: I look forward to beating you up in
0: person. I don't look forward to that, but it would be nice to talk with you. Anyway, I want to thank you for taking time out of your busiest of schedules. Dave Cameron to make your weekly appearance on Fangraphs Audio my pleasure yes right that is Dave Cameron I'm Carson Sestouli this has been Fangraphs Audio